Chapter 18 of The Secret City. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Rita Boutros. The Secret City by Hugh Walpole. Chapter 18. I arrived at the Baron's punctually at eight o'clock. His flat was in a small side street off the English Quay. I paused for a moment before turning into its dark recesses to gather in the vast expanse of the frozen river and the long white quay. It was as though I had found my way behind a towering wall that now closed me in with a smile of contemptuous derision. There was no sound in the shining air and the only figure was a guard who moved monotonously up and down outside the winter palace. I rang the bell, and the Schwitzer, bowing very ceremoniously, told me the flat was on the second floor. I went up a broad stone staircase and found a heavy oak door with brass nails confronting me. When this slowly swung open, I discovered a very old man with white hair bowing before me. He was a splendid figure, in a uniform of dark blue, his tall thin figure straight and slim, his white moustaches so neat and fierce that they seemed to keep guard over the rest of his face as though they warned him that they would stand no nonsense. There was an air of hushed splendor behind him, and I could hear the heavy solemn ticking of a clock keeping guard over all the austere sanctities of the place. When I had taken off my shuba and galoshes, I was ushered into a magnificent room with a high gold clock on the mantelpiece, gilt chairs, heavy dark carpets, and large portraits frowning from the gray walls. The whole room was bitterly silent, save for the tick of the clock. There was no fire in the fireplace but a large gleaming white stove flung out a close-scented heat from the further corner of the room. There were two long glass bookcases, some little tables with gilt legs, and a fine Japanese screen of dull gold. The only other piece of furniture was a huge grand piano near the window. I sat down and was instantly caught into the solemn silence. There was something threatening in the hush of it all. We do what we're told, the clock seemed to say, and so must you. I thought of the ice and snow beyond the windows, and, in spite of myself, shivered. Then the door opened, and the baron came in. He stood for a moment by the door, staring in front of him, as though he could not penetrate the heavy and dusky air. And seen thus, under the height and space of the room, he seemed so small as to be almost ridiculous, but he was not ridiculous for long. As he approached, one was struck at once by the immaculate efficiency that followed him like a protecting shadow. In himself he was a scrupulously neat old man, with weary and dissipated eyes, but behind the weariness, the neatness and dissipation was a spirit of indomitable determination and resolution. He wore a little white imperial and a long white moustache, his hair was brushed back, and his forehead shone like marble. He wore a black suit, white spats, and long-pointed black patent-leather shoes. He had the smallest feet I have ever seen on any man. 
He greeted me with great courtesy. His voice was soft, and he spoke perfect English, save for a very slight accent that was rather charming. This gave his words a certain naivete. He rubbed his hands and smiled in a gentle but determined way, as though he meant no harm by it, but had decided that it was a necessary thing to do. I forgot of what we talked, but I know that I surrendered myself at once to an atmosphere that had been strange to me for so long that I had almost forgotten its character, an atmosphere of discipline, order, comfort, and above all of security. My mind flew to the Markoviches, and I smiled to myself at the thought of the contrast. Then, strangely, when I had once thought of the Markovich flat, the picture haunted me for the rest of the evening. I could see the baron's gilt chairs and gold clock, his little imperial and shining shoes only through the cloudy disorder of the Markovich tables and chairs. There was poor Markovich in his dark little room, perched on his chair with his boots, with his hands, with his hair. And there was poor uncle, and there poor Vera. Why was I pitying them? I gloried in them. That is Russia. This is... Allow me to introduce you to my wife, the baron said, bending forward, the very points of his toes expressing amiability. The baroness was a large, solid lady with a fine white bosom and strong white arms. Her face was homely and kind. I saw at once that she adored her husband. Her placid smile carried beneath its placidity a tremulous anxiety that he should be pleased and her mild eyes swam in the light of his encouragement. I was sure, however, that the calm and discipline that I felt in the things around me came as much from her domesticity as from his discipline. She was a fortunate woman in that she had attained the ambition of her life to govern the household of a man whom she could both love and fear. Lawrence came in, and we went through high folding doors into the dining-room. This room had dark blue wallpaper, electric lights heavily shaded, and soft, heavy carpets. The table itself was flooded with light. The rest of the room was dusk. I wondered, as I looked about me, why the Wilderlings had taken Lawrence as a paying guest. Before my visit I had imagined that they were poor, as so many of the better-class Russians were, but here were no signs of poverty. I decided that. Our dinner was good, and the wine was excellent. We talked, of course, politics, and the baron was admirably frank. I won't disguise from you, Monsieur Durward, he said, that some of us watch your English effort at winning the heart of this country with sympathy, but also, if I am not offending you, with some humor. I'm not speaking only of your propaganda efforts. You've got, I know, one or two literary gentlemen here, a novelist, I think, and a professor and a journalist. Well, soon you'll find them inefficient, and decide that you must have some commercial gentlemen, and then, disappointed with them, you'll decide for the military, and still the great heart of Russia will remain untouched. Yes, I said, because your class are determined that the peasant shall remain uneducated, and until he is educated he will be unable to approach any of us quite so said the baron smiling at me very cheerfully 
I perceive, Monsieur Durward, that you are a Democrat. So are we all these days. You look surprised, but I assure you that the good of the people and the interests of the people is the only thing for which any of us care. Only some of us know Russia pretty well, and we know that the Russian peasant is not ready for liberty, and if you were to give him liberty to-night, you would plunge his country into the most desperate torture of anarchy and carnage known in history. A little more soup? We are offering you only a slight dinner. Yes, but, Baron, I said, would you tell me when it is intended that the Russian peasant shall begin his upward course towards light and learning? If that day is to be forever postponed? It will not be forever postponed, said the Baron gently. Let us finish the war, and education shall be given slowly, under wise direction, to every man, woman, and child in the country. Our Tsar is the most liberal ruler in Europe and he knows what is good for his children. And Protopopov and Sturmer, I asked? Protopopov is a zealous, loyal liberal, but he has been made to see during these last months that Russia is not at this moment ready for freedom. Sturmer, well, Monsieur Sturmer is gone. So you yourself, Baron, I asked, would oppose at this moment all reform? "'With every drop of blood in my body,' he answered, and his hand, flat against the tablecloth, quivered. "'At this crisis admit one change, and your dike is burst, your land flooded. Every Russian is asked at this moment to believe in simple things—his religion, his czar, his country. Grant your reforms, and in a week every babbler in the country will be off his head, talking, screaming, fighting.' The Germans will occupy Russia at their own good time. You will be beaten on the West, and civilization will be set back two hundred years. The only hope for Russia is unity, and for unity you must have discipline, and for discipline, in Russia at any rate, you must have an autocracy. As he spoke, the furniture, the grey walls, the heavy carpets, seemed to whisper an echo of his words, Unity, discipline, discipline, autocracy, autocracy, autocracy. Then tell me, Baron, I said, if it isn't an impertinent question, do you feel so secure in your position that you have no fears at all? Does such a crisis, as for instance Milyukov's protest last November, mean nothing? You know the discontent. Is there no fear? Fear! He interrupted me, his voice swift and soft and triumphant. Monsieur Durward, are you so ignorant of Russia that you consider the outpourings of a few idealistic intelligentsia, professors and teachers and poets, as important? What about the people, Monsieur Durward? You ask any peasant in the Moscow government, or little Russia, or the Ukraine, whether he will remain loyal to his little father or no. Ask, and the question you suggested to me will be answered. Then you feel both secure and justified, I said. We feel both secure and justified, he answered me, smiling. After that, our conversation was personal and social. Lawrence was very quiet. 
I observed that the baroness had a motherly affection for him, that she saw that he had everything that he wanted, and that she gave him every now and then little friendly confidential smiles. As the meal proceeded, as I drank the most excellent wine, and the warm austerity of my surroundings gathered ever more closely around me, I wondered whether, after all, my apprehensions and forebodings of the last weeks had not been the merest sick man's cowardice. Surely, if any kingdom in the world was secure, it was this official Russia. I could see it stretching through the space and silence of that vast land, its servants in every village, its paths and roads, all leading back to the central citadel, its whispered orders flying through the air from district to district, its judgments, its rewards, its sins, its virtues, resting upon a basis of superstition and ignorance and apathy, the three sure friends of autocracy through history. And on the other side, who? The rat, Boris Grogov, Markovitch. Yes, the baron had reason for his confidence. I thought for a moment of that figure that I had seen on Christmas Eve by the river, the strong, grave, bearded peasant, whose gaze had seemed to go so far beyond the bounds of my own vision. But no, Russia's mystical peasant, that was an old tale. Once on the front, when I had seen him facing the enemy with bare hands, I had myself believed it. Now I thought once more of the rat, that was the type whom I must now confront. I had a most agreeable evening. I do not know how long it had been since I had tasted luxury and comfort, and the true fruits of civilization. The baron was a most admirable teller of stories, with a capital sense of humor. After dinner the baroness left us for half an hour and the baron became very pleasantly Rabelaisian, speaking of his experiences in Paris and London, Vienna and Berlin, so easily and with so ready a wit that the evening flew. The baroness returned, and seeing that it was after eleven, I made my farewells. Lawrence said that he would walk with me down the quay before turning into bed. My host and hostess pressed me to come as often as possible. The baron's last words to me were, "'Have no fears, Monsieur Durward. There is much talk in this country, but we are a lazy people.' The we rang strangely in my ears. "'He's of course no more a Russian than you or I,' I said to Lawrence as we started down the quay. "'Oh, yes, he is,' Lawrence said, "'quite genuine, not a drop of German blood, in spite of the name. "'But he's a Prussian at heart, a Prussian of the Prussians. "'By that I don't mean in the least that he wants Germany to win the war. "'He doesn't. "'His interests are all here, and you mayn't believe me, "'but I assure you he's a patriot. "'He loves Russia, and he wants what's best for her, "'and believes that to be autocracy.' After that, Lawrence shut up. He would not say another word. We walked for a long time in silence. The evening was most beautiful. A golden moon flung the snow into dazzling relief against the deep black of the palaces. Across the Neva, the line of towers and minarets and chimneys ran like a huge fissure in the golden light from sky to sky. You said there was something you wanted to ask my advice about. I broke the silence. 
he looked at me with a long slow considering stare he mumbled something then with a sudden gesture he gripped my arm and his heavy body quivering with the urgency of his words he said it's vera markovitch i'd give my body and soul and spirit for her happiness and safety god forgive me i'd give my country and my honour i ache and long for her so that i'm afraid for my sanity i've never loved a woman nor lusted for one nor touched one in my whole life durward and now and now i've gone right in i've spoken no word to any one but i couldn't stand my own silence durward you've got to help me i walked on seeing the golden light and the curving arc of snow and the little figures moving like dolls from light to shadow lawrence i had never thought of him as an urgent lover even now although i could still feel his hand quivering on my arm i could have laughed at the ludicrous incongruity of romance and that stolid thick-set figure and at the same time i was afraid lawrence in love was no boy on the threshold of life like bowen here was no trivial passion i realized even in that first astonished moment the trouble that might be in store for all of us look here lawrence i said at last the first thing that you may as well realize is that it is hopeless vera mikhailovna has confided in me a good deal lately and she is devoted to her husband thinks of nothing else she's simple naive with all her sense and wisdom hopeless he interrupted and he gave a kind of grim chuckle of derision my dear durward what do you suppose i'm after rape and adultery and markovitch after us with a pistol i tell you and here he spoke fiercely as though he were challenging the whole ice-bound world around us that i want nothing but her happiness her safety her comfort do you suppose that i'm such an ass as not to recognize the kind of thing that my loving her would lead to i tell you i'm after nothing for myself and that's not because i'm a fine unselfish character but simply because the thing's too big to let anything into it but herself she shall never know that i care two pence about her but she's got to be happy and she's got to be safe just now she's neither of those things and that's why i've spoken to you she's unhappy and she's afraid and that's got to change I wouldn't have spoken of this to you if I thought you'd be so short-sighted. All right, all right, I said testily. You may be a kind of Galahad, Lawrence, outside all natural law, I don't know. But you'll forgive me if I go for a moment on my own experience, and that experience is that you can start on as highbrow an elevation as you like. But love doesn't stand still, and the body's the body and to-morrow isn't yesterday not by no means moreover markovitch is a russian and a peculiar one at that finally remember that i want vera mikhailovna to be happy quite as much as you do he was suddenly grave and almost boyish in his next words i know that you're a decent chap durward i know it's hard to believe me but i just ask you to wait and test me no one knows of this that i'd swear and no one shall but what's the matter with her durward what's she afraid of that's why i spoke to you you know her and i'll throttle you here where we stand if you don't tell me just what the trouble is 
I don't care for confidences or anything of the sort. You must break them all and tell me. His hand was on my arm again, his big ugly face, now grim and obstinate, close against mine. I'll tell you, I said slowly, all I know, which is almost nothing. The trouble is Semyonov, the doctor. Why or how, I can't say, although I've seen enough of him in the past to know the trouble he can be. She's afraid of him, and Markovitch is afraid of him. He likes playing on people's nerves. He's a bitter, disappointed man who loved desperately once, as only real sensualists can. And now he's in love with a ghost. That's why real life maddens him. Semyonov, Lawrence whispered the name. We had come to the end of the quay. My dear church, with its round gray walls, stood glistening in the moonlight, the shadows from the snow rippling up its sides as though it lay under water. We stood and looked across the river. I've always hated that fellow, Lawrence said. I've only seen him about twice, but I believe I hated him before I saw him. All right, Derwood, that's what I wanted to know. Thank you. Good night. And before I could speak, he had gripped my hand, had turned back, and was walking swiftly away across the golden-lighted quay. End of chapter 18